The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, Springs Church. Good morning. There you go. Welcome to all of you who are gathered here and online. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be upon all of you. So tomorrow, um, the Springs staff... Kelly is meeting with Catholic Charities to discuss uh, this family that are refugees from Afghanistan, and it looks like they could be in the bunkhouse by Wednesday of this week. So, yeah. So, we've done a lot of the prep work, and there's still work to be done, and now takes the, world, the real godly work of hospitality of loving the stranger. And so we just want to make you aware of that. I don't think things are fully final, but it, it looks like there's a meeting tomorrow and it looks like Wednesday's going to be the day. Speaking of hospitality, this Wednesday, uh, the 17th, is our next welcome table. And so it's going to be potluck. You bring your own chili, bring chili and bring pie. And this is a real chance uh, for us to practice hospitality. We started Welcome Table several years ago because we really felt like um, God has welcomed us. That is why we are here. That is why who we are, and we've discovered the grace of God because he is hospitable. And so at the very least, the Welcome Table is this opportunity for us to be like God, to image Christ, and to welcome others to welcome others who we may know, to welcome others that we don't know, to welcome people that maybe are like us, and to welcome people that aren't like us. So please invite your, your friends, invite your neighbors, invite strangers, uh, because this is a chance for us to practice uh, being formed into the image of Christ by being hospitable to our neighbors. So this Wednesday is welcome table at 6.30 in the gym. Please bring someone. We are a community of faith uh, who is being transformed into the image of Christ so that many will find their way to God. And we do this through gathering together in the name of the Father and through growing into the image of His Son and then to go by the power of His Spirit. And this year, we're focusing on growing discipleship, growing into the image of Christ. And so we've been in the book of James, Wisdom from Above which is real practical wisdom for our lives about what it means to grow in faith, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So if you'll read with me, we're in James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet. But you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you, what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he is jealously, that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. God, as always, we come thankful for your word. Even as direct as it is. For it is wisdom. And it guides us in ways that perhaps we're not able to come up with on our own. And so, as we listen to your wisdom from above, as the gift of your word to us, we pray for ears to hear. We pray for hearts to follow. We pray for bodies and lives that will obey. And God, I ask for the gift of preaching today. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So, my brother and I, we played lots of games together. Not board games, but we played lots of sports games together. So, I remember when we were younger, we had one of those basketball goals that, you know, you could lift up and move down, and we played with those mini balls, and we lowered it down, so that way we felt like NBA players, right? We could dunk, do all those things, but I remember playing my brother Adam, of course he was younger than me, and he was smaller than me, and playing basketball, and I remember that it came down to the last point, and I remember making a move and dribbling, and he guarding me, and as I went up, I shoved him, and then I went up and made the basket and won the game. Victory. I beat him. Feels good to beat your younger brother. You should beat your younger brother, right? But he yells out, hey, you pushed me. That's a foul. That wasn't a foul. I didn't foul you. You're just mad because I won. Well, one thing led to another, and we got in a fight. Well, kind of a fight. We started arguing and quarreling, and pretty soon he hauls off and punches me right in the face. I just kind of stood there for a second, and then I got this look of, like, pure anger. And he went, oh, and just ran off to my mom. And we never, not another punch was thrown. We kind of laughed about it. Now, that's a story that happened, besides him punching me in the face, it happened over and over again. As you can imagine, kids quarreling. And I for sure pushed him. I did. But my, we got in a fight because my desire to win that basketball game was greater than my desire to be fair. So, why did we get in a fight? Because of my desire to win. Over my desire to be fair to my brother. 
James 4, 1 through 3 says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What causes conflict? James says, says it's our desires. Our desires that battle within us, like my own desire to win over this desire to be fair or just. Earlier on in James, we read in chapter 1, 14 and 15, it says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desires and enticed. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. I don't know if we put enough emphasis on desire. Desire is a big thing to James. What you love... And who you love. It's a big deal to James. And it's not just desire in general, but he says, this is the problem. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And he's not talking about, by the way, because he says brothers and sisters. So he's not just talking about general war in the world or conflicts. Although we could kind of take this out and that would be true. But he's talking about what like actually causes fights among you and me. Among people sitting in this room and people living in your house. And he kind of defines it as this envious desire. This desire that covets. The threat of losing something or not having something causes conflict in us. Now at the beginning of James, James is writing to Christians that he calls the diaspora, right, of Jerusalem. And part of what it means to be diaspora is that you are not at home. And therefore, if you're not at home, whenever you're not at home, there's a lack of security that comes from being away from home. And when you're not at home, you begin taking on other identities and ways of thinking. In a sense, you could become double-minded. You can act one way at home, and you act another way in a different situation. If you, ever, you don't have to raise your hand, but you know you've done this, right? You, they, where you can be yourself, and you feel secure, and then you're in a place or a situation where you don't feel as secure, and you act a different way. We all do it. It's like human nature on some level to do that. To not be at home is to not have security. And when we don't have security, we want that. And that desire is very, very strong. This, to have security is a very strong desire in human beings. A friend of mine, Richard Beck, he talks about this. He's, he's somewhat of a writer theologian, but he's primarily an experimental psychologist. He's a very famous blog, and he's written several books. But he talks about, like in psychology, that uh, he talks about this 
this aspect of psychology where they call basic anxieties, right? That we have basic anxieties that, in other words, that if you don't have food or shelter, right, or security and the threat against violence, those are basic anxieties. If you don't have those things, it may cause you to lash out, right, to do things which you might nor- normally do, right? We can all, we can all kind of relate to that on some level. But most of us don't live life with a lot of those basic anxieties. Most of us have shelter, right? We're pretty, we're fairly secure. I mean, I know there's insecurities about maybe your job or, you know, there's, but in general, we have shelter. In general, I think not all of us, but we live relatively secure lives. We don't worry about starving. Now, the only really time that, that I begin quarreling with, uh, over food is not because of lack of food. It's because something silly, like I go out to dinner with Kim, and we order something different, and her plate comes with a buttermilk biscuit. And oh, I want that biscuit. And she won't let me have that buttermilk biscuit. Don't tell her I said that. She's probably watching right now. I'm probably in big trouble. But usually silly stuff like that. We don't usually worry about food. But what he says, he goes on to say, what most of us in Western culture, most of us that probably sit in this room, he says what most of us experience are what was called neurotic anxieties. Neurotic anxiety is this, the need for self-preservation in the forms of success and self-esteem. This is what really starts to hit home. We don't really worry too much about food and shelter. and We do. Don't get me wrong. Don't, some of you are going to come up to me and like, you don't understand. Some of us do. But what we really, the anxieties we really have are these neurotic anxieties that have to do with self-preservation in the form of success and self-esteem. So there's this real sense that as human beings that, that there's a scarcity in the world there's the scarcity of my own existence in the world. Whether it be my physical existence or my identity through self-esteem and success. So it may look like this. You might fear that when somebody is getting ahead of you, getting something you don't have that you want, what begins to creep in? Jealousy and envy. Right? That neurotic anxiety. Or something like this, when pride creeps in, that somehow you're not enough. Right? So you want to make yourself something. You're not secure in that. So you have pride and seek to get more of what it is that makes you worthy. We've all felt that. Or greed. You fear that there might not be enough of the stuff of life, not enough money. The fear of not having enough that may hold us back from being generous and open-handed. Or lust. 
It's a fear of not being satisfied. That I just can't get enough. That I just want more. Or that I might actually be rejected so I get more and more and more. Or I go into this and do that and lust after all of these things. Or when someone that is very other comes into your presence, you have a fear of that other, what they might do to you or how they might change you. or how, And so there's this temptation to judge, to make a judgment on them. Maybe it makes you feel better about yourself to judge them. But what James seems to tell us is that we, our lives are directed by our desires. So he says, why do you get into quarrels and fights? Because of your desires. It's because of your loves. Now, I don't think James, in a sense, says that all desire is bad. Of course, not all love is bad. So let me put it in love terms rather than desire, what you love. Okay? Because love, desire since has this negative meaning, but I want to say love is what he's talking about, what you actually love. And Augustine says this about our loves or about our desires, right? He says, as a body, a body by its weight tends to move towards its proper place, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. Do you hear that? My weight is my love or my desires. And wherever my Wherever I'm carried, it's my desires that are carrying me there. And so, in a sense, you are what you love. So when we pursue what we love, and when what we love is good, good things happen. When we pursue what we love and what we love is not good, (laughs) quarrels, bad things happen just on a most basic level. But what I think he's saying is this, is that you are desiring beings, you and I are desiring beings, and what directs our life is not so much our thinking, although that's important, but what we want. We talked about this a few weeks ago. What our loves are, that directs us. And if you want to know what you love, look what you spend time doing. Look who you spend time with. I love my wife. I spend time with her. If I didn't love her, I probably wouldn't spend much time with her. But what James, I think, is saying is that it's important that we order our loves, order our desires. Augustine goes on and says this. He describes a just and good person as... A person who has rightly ordered his or her loves so that he or she does not love what is wrong to love or fail to love what should be loved or love too much what should be loved less or love too little what should be loved more. And here's how this works. For Augustine, his big thing is sex. 
So Augustine says something like this. God, you've made the world so good. There are so many good things to love. It's all good to love. And that woman over there, he says, she's worthy of my love. And I should love her. But then he says, but that woman's not my wife. And if I don't order my love, that love will not only kill me, but it'll kill that relationship with my wife. You see what ordered love looks like? And this, this is for Augustine. This is what sin is. It's disordered love. It's disordered love. It's loving things that shouldn't be loved a lot, too much, and not loving the things that should be loved too little. That's what he says. So here's how it works for us. There's nothing wrong with loving your work. But if you love it more than your family, then your loves are out of order and you may ruin your family. Or there's nothing wrong with wanting or a promotion, desiring a promotion. But if you don't get it and someone else does and that causes jealousy, that's disordered love. That's a disordered desire. Or there's nothing wrong with wanting a relationship or a friendship with someone. But if someone is, becomes in a relationship with the person you want to be in or becomes friends or better friends with the person you want to be friends with and you're jealous of that and envious, that's disordered love. It's disordered. Or you may love making money more than you love justice. So you'll exploit your employees because you've, your loves are disordered. Or you may love or want to get good grades. But if you love the grade more than you actually love the learning, then you're going to be tempted to cheat to get that success. It's a disordered love. It's okay to be right about something. But if you love being right at the expense of someone else, it ruins the relationship. Anybody that's been married ever done that before? You don't have to raise your hand. How many quarrels and fights come because we desire to be right over the desire for the person who disagrees for us? The desire to be right is greater than the desire to love the person across the table. from you. How many of you, don't raise your hand, I'll just... I'll just self-incriminate myself. How many of you have gotten an argument and you think you're right only in the middle of the argument to realize you're wrong? But you're just so upset that you just keep arguing even though you're wrong because they're not going to win this argument. Have you ever done that? You don't have to raise your hand. But every one of you could probably raise your hand. disordered love. It's these desires. Envious. Wanting something more than the thing we should love. Desire is not a bad thing, but it is disordered when it is turned inward and not towards God and towards others. So this is why James goes on to say in verse chapter 4, 4 through 6, he says this, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? 
Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or don't you think, or don't you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's a rhetorical question because everybody in the room knows the answer to that question is yes. You can't be friends with the world and with God. Or, to put it another way, like James says, you can't be double-minded. This is what it means to be friends with the world. That is to desire and possess the world. You don't have enough. Self-esteem, security, success, all of these things. As opposed to God and God's self-giving love to the world. So it's on one hand desire to possess the world compared with God's self-giving love for the world. You cannot desire to possess the world, to gain your own security by your own means and be friends with God because God's love is self-giving. And here's the good news. The very center of this whole text is that God gives us more grace. He's given us grace, and he continues to give and to give and to give and to give and to give. God created the world good and full of provision and generosity, and he continues to be generous and gracious to each and every one of us. And so we are to live out of this experience of goodness and generosity in relationship to others. This generosity comes into conflict, though, when our desire for our own security, that is to secure our lives rather than depend on God's provision for our lives. So, He says, God gives us more grace. He's been very generous. The whole world is set up like this. That God's goodness and generosity is overflowing. And we should live in response to this to our neighbor. But it comes into conflict when we have this desire to secure our own self by our own means. Whether it's our own success, our own self-esteem, our own lives, whatever it is. And when that happens, it's when quarrels start. When my desire to succeed and win over my desire to be fair to my brother, when that love for succeeding and what it gives to me is greater than my love for fairness towards my brother, that, James says, is the real problem. Because unbridled desire is really an expression of practical atheism. You may not be an atheist, but unbridled desire, one that's, that's not ordered, desire that's not ordered towards God and others, is practical atheism. It is to live in a world as if God's goodness and generosity does not exist at all. This corrupts the generosity of God and God's creation so that the world is turned in on itself in desire to possess the other or what the other person has. 
You got the promotion? I want that promotion. You have success? I want that success. And so what happens is the other person in your life becomes actually a competitor leading to conflict and fighting and wars. This is the wisdom of the world, James says. This is the wisdom of scarcity. When everybody is around you is a competitor to where your desire is envious towards them. So, it looks like this, according to the world. The wisdom of the world, the wisdom of scarcity, is that we must acquire our own security. We must acquire positions that give us security. We must acquire our own esteem. We must acquire our own acceptance. We must acquire superiority over others, whether that's in terms of, could be wealth, could be in terms of honor. It might even be moral superiority that seeks to justify, that you seek to justify yourself rather than depending on God to justify you. So James 4, 7 through 10 says this, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Because he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so, to not be proud, according to James, is to submit yourself. And this looks like resisting the devil. And James actually believes we can resist these desires. And then he says, instead of following the desires of the devil, we resist the devil and we draw near to God and he will draw near to us. That's what submission looks like. Then he says, wash, purify, grieve change. This is a call to repentance. And a change, it's a change of an outward action and inward intentions and commitments. That we actually change. That we submit ourselves to God. We resist the devil. We come near to God. That we repent and we change. Our outward actions, because Faith without works is dead. But also our inward commitments, what we actually love in the world. He says, we're double-minded. So he's saying, make up your mind. Or really what he's saying is, make up your heart. Right? We say, make up your mind. Decide. Decide what you're going to love. Decide what you're going to love. Who and what you're going to love. And here's the key. He says, we may have to mourn a bit. We may have to mourn the loss of the way we have loved in the past. Because we've done this way of loving, this desires for a long time. And I guarantee when you change to love God, you'll experience some mourning. It's going to be difficult. Because you're so accustomed to loving in a certain way and loving certain things that when you change and love something else, while it's wonderful and beautiful, you've got to kind of there's a mourning period that comes. And this mourning is a very humbling experience. 
But here's God's promise to you and I. That if we humble ourselves before the Lord, He will lift you and I up. Let's stand.